Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is our ministry, our website, prophecytoday.com. And Rick, we are watching. Uh, it's amazing when we see what's happening on the images on TV, where the world is. Who would have thought that really when we were talking about Russia invading Ukraine, that it would take us to this point? Certainly has happened very quickly. I know we talked about it for many, many weeks, months leading up to it. And, and even before it happened, I wasn't sure it was going to happen the way it's happening right now. But I'm certainly glad that we've got some really smart people that have come on that have agreed to come on the show with us today and help explain the situation that's going on there. Yes, we do have Ken Temmerman. He's going to be talking about it from his point of view, geopolitical point of view. David Dolan, a Mideast journalist for so many years, from his point of view and what's taking place. We also have an old friend, Dr. Rob Congdon, will be with us. And I like his point of view this week. I'm using that word point of view a lot because these are points of view of people that are sharing with us. And Rob's looking at it from a religious point of view. What Vladimir Putin and his religious background has to do with the invasion of Ukraine. R.C. Merle will be back with us and we'll be talking to a pastor in Romania as he is looking and seeing the Ukrainians coming into the city. And I'll give you a hint. And I know that we have seen this all on the images. They're all women and children and no males. Man, we are living in perilous times, as Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24. Well, let's get started, Rick, with today. We've got Ken Timmerman waiting on the line. Ken Timmerman joins us today, as he does almost every week, and he looks at events taking place in the world right now from a geopolitical perspective, and he's certainly very busy right now, and we have a lot to talk about, so thank you for joining us, Ken. Uh, it's uh, always a pleasure, Rick, although these are quite uh, tumultuous times. They certainly are, and let's just start with that then. We're looking at the situation that's taking place in Ukraine. Um, of course, that's on the top of everybody's minds, but I remember something you told us, I think it was two weeks ago on this program, where you talked about the fog of war, and there's going to be reports coming out from both sides, and it's really going to be hard to kind of know exactly what's taking place and to form an opinion. Is that still what you're seeing right now? Is the fog of war kind of clouding everything? Well, we're still in the fog of war, but uh, we're getting some glimpses of what is actually happening. And uh, I think part of this is because you now have professional news agency photographers who are getting into the war zones and bringing us uh, fresh footage of what's going on. And we're able to see, uh, which we could not see last week, the un unbelievable devastation caused by Putin's hmm. missile attacks on civilian areas. We're seeing housing complex that have been gutted, collapsed. Ten, these are 10 and 14 story housing complexes just gutted by Russian missiles. What kind of military target was that? We're seeing what really amounts to war crimes committed on I won't say primetime television because they're not really broadcasting all this. You have to hunt around for a lot of it on the Internet. But we're seeing war crimes taking place in real time. And the Russians seem to have absolutely no concern whatsoever for it. And even more astonishing than that is to see somebody like this American colonel, a guy named Doug McGregor, appear on Tucker Carlson and say that, well, this war could have been over in a couple of days if Zelensky had just capitulated. 
Well, my goodness gracious. I mean, this is this is just shocking to hear from an American. Uh, we're watching really a replay of the invasion of Poland in 1939, the invasion of France in 1940. We did not expect this two weeks ago. We were all led to believe, myself included, that Putin's goals were limited. He just wanted to go into the east of the country, predominantly Russian population, where he supposedly, we were led to believe, be welcomed you know, to a great extent. Well, that's not it at all. This is a very, very different kind of hot war. Let me throw this quote at you because uh, it's shocking, absolutely shocking. Uh, this is from the head of Russian foreign intelligence, a guy named Sergei Narishkin. Uh, he said just two days ago, and this is in the Russian media, so it's not an invention by the Ukrainians. This is direct from the horse's mouth. He said, for us in Russia, this is no longer a cold war with the West, but a hot war. Russia now has a real chance to put an end to the war that has been waged in the post-Soviet space for the past 30 years. That's chilling. That is absolutely chilling. It certainly is. And this aggression has caused kind of some unprecedented responses from the typical players there. We're looking at the European Union. We're talking about NATO, even nations like Germany and Switzerland. All these entities are reacting to this Russian aggression and the brutal war that is taking place in Ukraine. Well, and again, defying expectations, including my own. Last week, I told our listeners that the Germans in particular uh, didn't want to turn up the heat on Russia because it meant it would mean turning down the heat on themselves. Well, guess what? Over the weekend, they had a revelation. Something happened. They had an epiphany. And by Monday uh, of this week, they announced dramatic, dramatic new sanctions. They announced that they would be changing the German constitution so they could export offensive weapons to Ukraine. Uh, they said they were going to cut off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and they said they were increasing their own defense expenditures. This was a sea change, a complete sea change. You even saw Switzerland, the, the uh, haven of dirty money from dictators everywhere, saying that they would block the bank accounts of Russian oligarchs. I mean, these are pretty extraordinary measures and make, frankly, just about everything that uh, the United States has announced look paltry by comparison. Moving away a little bit from the situation in Ukraine and, and our response to it and the president's response to it, I'd like to talk a little bit about the peace deal. And this has been on the back burner, of course, uh, Ukraine crisis and uh, Ukraine and Russia have dominated the news. But we're still negotiating up there with Iran. Do you have an update on that situation? Well, it's extraordinary that the United States should be seeking a new nuclear deal with Iran at a time when the International Atomic Energy Agency this week uh, declared that the Iranians have increased their production of highly enriched uranium, that's uranium up to 60%, by much more than half. You know, they have enough material to make their first bomb. Now, I happen to believe that the Iranians uh, have other nuclear weapon sites. There have been uh, satellite photos that we discussed uh, recently from ISIS online, this uh, group run by a former IAEA inspector, David Albright, that show construction of deep buried nuclear sites that the IAEA cannot visit. The Iranians won't let them to visit. But here's the ultimate irony of continuing these negotiations with the Iranians. You know who's leading them? It's the Russian delegate, a guy named Yulanov. And you know what's going to happen if that deal is concluded? 
Iranians will get about $50 billion of their own money that's been frozen overseas because of predominantly American sanctions. And the Russians will get a payment of $500 million from Iran for work that they have done on Iran's so-called civilian nuclear power industry. How do you like that for a, a historic and political irony? And so there's definitely a tie between Russia and Iran and also China. We know that there's a close relationship. This kind of access is coming together. It's reshaping the whole geopolitical scene on the world today, isn't it? Absolutely. I have a story that will be out in Newsmax magazine next month in April about the Russia-China-Iran axis. It's very real. It's been going on for some time, but it is accentuated with recent events. Uh, you're going to have China purchasing Russian oil. So what the oil that Russia can no longer sell on the international market uh, will be going to China. You will have the Iranians, once sanctions are relieved, thanks to Russian uh, intercession, they will also be buying Russian oil and turning it around and selling it to other people. So giving the Russians a backdoor into the international financial markets. And that's just on the economic front. On the strategic front, these three countries uh, held naval exercises in the beginning of February this year, just outside the Strait of Hormuz, through which about 25% of the world's petroleum transits every year. And this is the third year in a row they've done it. So they are holding joint military naval exercises, Russia, China, and Iran. And that's just the start of it. There's a lot more going on. They have uh, long-term deals that have been put in place. These three see themselves in a new axis with the goal of undermining America's dominance in the world and replacing us. Well, Ken, for this last question, what I'm asking you to do, Ken, is give me your opinion. Uh, where are we headed right now? Is this the start? And, and I don't want to be over the top, but is this the start uh, of a larger, even apocalyptic type war that's coming? World War Three, I guess you would say. That is what Putin has been threatening. That is what his foreign minister has been threatening. They have been saying the next war, World War Three, will be nuclear. Rick, this is a, a truly horrible, horrible future for Europe and for us and for the rest of the world. Uh, Putin has not displayed a great deal of sang-froid. He hasn't had been calculated. We have all thought of him as a chess player. It looks like somebody's upset his chessboard and he's trying to find the pieces down on the ground. Uh, I am very worried uh, with this first major invasion on the European continent of one power uh, of another since 19, eh, let's say, 68, when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. Uh, so this is a, is a new event. It's a dramatic event. It's a strategic event. And Putin has succeeded where no American president has been able to succeed in the past in uniting Europe in a common cause to resist. So uh, this is a showdown between uh, an old, brutal, czarist Russia and uh, a Europe that has been feckless and fat and happy for 40 years. And now they all of a sudden realize they might have to fight again on their own soil to preserve their own freedom. Uh, these are dramatic times. Well, they certainly are dramatic times, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to our listeners. It's just so much going on, and you provide great insight, so we appreciate you doing that. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Russia seizes its first major city in Ukraine as the invasion enters a second week. Over a million people have fled the country so far, and the civilian death toll could be as high as 2,000. Ukraine's future grows darker by the day, but a ray of light emanates from believers on the ground. Operation Mobilization USA is helping pastors and churches in Ukraine read their stories in the full report at missionnews.org, and please continue to pray for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Christians make up just 0.3% of the population of Bangladesh. It's difficult for that number to grow. Peter Mazumdar is the National Director of Asian Access in Bangladesh. He says sharing the gospel is constitutionally protected in Bangladesh, but it still often brings persecution. Over the last three years, more than 11,000 Christians have been displaced after their houses were burned. Ask God to protect believers who come out of Muslim families. You're listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. And we're back here on Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the segment of the program where we have our conversation with Dave Dolan and we get our Middle East news update. Dave, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to do it, Rick. Well, in this Middle East news update, we look at news coming out of the Middle East, but even more specifically, out of Israel as well. And so that's where I want to start today. There was a story that came out this week. The U.S. has protested Israel's refusal to back a U.N. resolution condemning Russia, and it looks to me like they are kind of straddling the fence here on this conflict. Well, Rick, that was the end of last week uh, that the Security Council took its first vote on the war in Russia, in Ukraine. And um, the United States asked all of its allies and friends to co-sponsor the resolution in the Security Council that Israel's not a part of. There's only 15 members of the Security Council. Right now, for this month, the leader is the UAE, a close ally, obviously, of Israel. They signed the Abraham Accords and of the states. But they voted uh, neutrally on the resolution. Well, Israel pointed out they don't have a vote in the Security Council. Council. So sponsoring a resolution that everybody knew Russia was going to veto, which they did, so it went nowhere, was pointless, was meaningless, is what they were essentially saying. But uh, as you said, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. handed the Israeli ambassador a note saying they were very disappointed. 
uh, that they weren't a co-sponsor. Israel said it was just symbolic and pointed out that they have other things to deal with concerning Russia. But Rick, later on Wednesday, they did support the secure, the uh, General Assembly uh, condemnation of Russia's action, of Putin's action. Uh, which over 140 countries, a vast majority of the UN members voted in favor of, and only five voted against, of course, including Russia and its uh, good buddy Syria, and um, that they did support. And more importantly, they talked the UAE into changing its stance from neutral to against Putin's invasion. And the U.S. is very grateful for that. So things have have turned around in that sense. Meanwhile, of course, the Ukrainians have criticized Israel for not uh, supporting them enough. Uh, President Zelensky on Thursday gave a press conference in a bunker, and an Israeli journalist was there and asked him about that. And he said, quote, I expected greater support from Prime Minister Bennett. I saw nice pictures of Jews wrapped in Ukrainian flags by the Western Wall. They prayed for us. I thank them for that. Our relations with Israeli leaders are not bad, but they're being tested in a time of need. And then he said, I did not feel that the Israeli prime minister is wrapped in our flag. Well, as an Israeli friend of mine said uh, on the phone, Rick, uh, earlier this week to me, uh, we have Russia on our northern border, just as Ukraine has Russia on their northern border. Uh, Ukraine is also opposed by Belarus. Israel has the Lebanese Hezbollah in Iran there as well. So they've got three enemies to their northern and eastern borders. And uh, Russia is not formally an enemy, but obviously, like you said last week, Israel fears poking the bear in the eye right now. And uh, there has been stepped up military activity off of the coast of Syria, as we've talked about. There was a report of a U.S. spy plane flying low over the area this week, unusually low. There's a lot of tension in the area. And um You know, the Israelis uh, certainly do not support the invasion into Ukraine. And by the way, Rick, it was announced that a field hospital is being shipped from Israel to Poland, to the eastern border area at Ukraine's request with over 100 uh, Israeli volunteers. This is not a military action, but volunteers, doctors and others, mostly Russian speaking, that are heading that way. Uh, They've given over 100 tons of aid to Ukraine. But the Ukrainian president wants more aid from everybody and, of course, more military aid. And that Israel's done only in a very limited way. Again, they just can't afford to poke Russia right in the eye right now. Well, that's a really perfect explanation of that situation. And a little nation there in the Middle East with more than its share of enemies. And they don't need to make another one at this time, especially another one that's at their border in the north, correct? Well, that's exactly it. And and there have been strong condemnations from Israelis, uh, most notably Natan Sharansky, who was originally Anatoly Sharansky, of course, the most famous refusenik imprisoned in Russia for over nine years in the 70s and 80s for his desire to move to Israel. Well, most people won't know that he's Ukrainian born. He was born in Donetsk, and he made some very strong statements against Putin after the midweek bombing uh, of the television 
Station Tower in uh, Kiev, which uh, also one of the rockets hit the Bobby Yar uh, Holocaust Memorial right next door. That uh, was the first mass slaughter of World War II, Rick, deliberate slaughter. The Nazis in just two days slaughtered all of the Jews of Kiev. It was around 34,000 and put them all in some wadi, some trenches right outside of town, and, and it was a mass grave. Well, there's a Holocaust memorial there now. That was hit, and a fire was started, and he made a very strong statement, as did most Israeli leaders. They're definitely not for this invasion. There's no question about that, but they have to watch their back because uh, they have to deal with Russia, and if they're to keep Iran from getting any stronger, they have to have at least somewhat Rus- Russian acquiescence to Israeli action in Syria, and that the, that's just more important right at the moment for Israel, and in particular since Iran is closely allied with Russia and is threatening war all the time against Israel. Another story that I saw coming out this week, and I thought it was very revealing, not only in maybe why Israel acts the way they do in their political and military uh, presentation, but also maybe uh, speaks a little bit to why Putin felt emboldened to do what he's doing right now. And it's the story, a former colonel from the British military force in Afghanistan had this quote. He said, if the West had followed Israel's example of strength in defending itself and its interest, we would not be where we are today. Could you talk about that story? Well, I think there's a general uh, sense in Israel. Uh, you certainly see it in the media, but uh, you don't hear it from officials on record anyway. But they're quite disappointed in Joe Biden in every way, frankly, on a lot of levels. And uh, we seem to be on the verge, as we talked about last week, of the JCPOA being reconstituted, where America will be signing an agreement with Russia as one of the partners right now, you know, which will also free up a lot of money for Iran, will free up oil transfers out of Iran. And they think that may be what Biden wants. He wants to flood the market with non-American oil. But they believe that the U.S. and its NATO allies should have, the Israelis believe, should have uh, been arming the Ukrainians well before now. And they point to the statements that uh, Anthony Blinken and the president himself and many others made over the past few months that an invasion was coming, that it would be terrible, that they needed to prepare. But meanwhile, they weren't really sending the stingers, the javelins, uh, the other anti defensive missiles that uh, Ukraine needed or anything else. And uh, they feel it was uh, too little, too late. And, uh, and that, yes, indeed, if they had done more actually on the ground, Putin might have been deterred. And Israel always takes that line, Rick. You have to be strong, strong, strong. You have to appear it. You have to show it. You have to be training all the time, which they've been doing in stepped up manners, as we've talked about all of the last year. Uh, if you're going to have any hope of deterring evil nations from attacking you. And that's uh, that's what Ukraine needed to do. And that's what Israel is doing all the time. The last question I had for you, and I feel like uh, it's it's a little bit more lighthearted and a little bit more positive, uh, but you lived in Israel for many years, and it is in a desert, arid region. One of the national obsessions over there was the level of the the Lake Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, and I hear that they are reaching almost uh, to maximum capacity. 
Yes, it ended uh, the month of February just a couple feet below the highest it can go. And if it ever gets to that height, they actually have to open a dam in the southern end of the lake, which they haven't done since 1992 when I was there, because we haven't had uh, a lot of moisture. It's been in the drought condition. This year, very good rain, although they pointed out that twice it's come up to that level in recent years by this time of the winter and then didn't reach that top maximum part. But it's near it, and that's a great blessing because Israel, of course, needs water. Uh, they give some of that water to Jordan as well as part of the 94 peace deal with them. So everybody's always glad. And, of course, the skiers, yes, Israel has skiers. Um, they go up to Mount Hermon, and it's had a good snowpack this year, and everybody likes that. For those of you that have been to Israel, either with us or by yourself or with another group, you will know exactly the beauty that is the Sea of Galilee and how wonderful a place it is to be. And uh, as they have recently opened up for tourism, we're looking forward to going back there soon. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insight, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You're always welcome, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right here on Prophecy Today. When we come back, we have Dr. Rob Congdon with us, and he's going to talk about uh, the possible religious motivation for Vladimir Putin. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio. We have with us a frequent guest, a guest that's been with us many times in the past. I haven't heard from him recently, but there's no better time than the present because he's got some very pertinent information. Information on this uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis that I haven't heard from any other source. And so uh, we are very pleased to have Dr. Rob Congdon with Congdon Ministries International. He's joining us today, a longtime guest and friend of the program. Thank you for joining us today, Rob. Oh, it's great to be with you again and to uh, be with your listeners again. Well, the thing I wanted to talk about, and it definitely struck my interest when you told me about it, is, you know, we look at all the economic and the political reasons why Vladimir Putin invaded the Ukraine. But I'm asking you now, you are pointing out that there are some religious motivations that he has as well. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it's something that's not being covered, and yet... In my studies, I find it's probably the number one force driving of Vladimir Putin to do this action. And so I think it's important we as Christians need to understand we're in a spiritual battle in the whole world. 
and we need to understand it from a biblical Christian viewpoint and understanding this type of uh, situations that they're all within God's plan and purposes, and we need to see how they fit. Now, when we say a religious viewpoint, what exactly are we talking about? I mean, we're not necessarily saying that Vladimir Putin is a born-again believer, but he has a religious worldview, does he not? That's right, and and I almost want to preface this just so everybody understands. Uh, what I'm going to be saying about Putin is not trying to defend him or justify his actions. It's trying to understand what moves him, and that's important to understand. And furthermore, we've got to sort of set aside our views of the 50s, 60s Russia and and understand what this man is driving. Um, most people think of the 50s, 60s Russia as atheistic. Uh, Vladimir Putin is actually an extremely religious man, and I use that term as you suggested. I'm not suggesting he's a Christian. I'm saying he's very religious. He's a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. He has reestablished the Russian Orthodox Church after the communist Russia basically almost destroyed it. He has restored it to a greatness that exceeds that it had during the Tsar era of Russia. And so that's his, his big influence. He was baptized as a child secretly by his mother and raised from a Russian Orthodox viewpoint. Um, because of that, he has this incredible drive to reestablish, and a lot of things I'm going to say come from quotes that he's written about, and I haven't seen any real change in the man and his thinking, but he believes it's absolutely essential to reestablish the history, the cultural, and this is the key word, spiritual space of Russia. That means and centers, according to the Russian Orthodox Church, the city of Kiev in the Ukraine. So that's his focus. It's to reestablish this as he once knew or believed that Russia is supposed to be, and that's crucial to have Kiev. That's where he's headed. In understanding the spiritual aspects, you see it even more from what, why he's driving so hard and why I personally will find it hard to believe he'll back down. Well, that does kind of make a little bit of sense. When you listen to him talk about Ukraine and the leaders that are there now, it almost was like a religious fervor and that these men who were in charge of Ukraine were heretics. That's right. And and that's exactly how he views it. Um, now, we chuckle again because we come from a mindset, some of us who are a little older, that, you know, Russia's all atheistic. Uh, Putin uh, is a, a man of history. He has studied history extensively. And um, part of that history is Kiev, which is where it's the city that the Russian Orthodox Church, now I need to briefly explain what we call the church history, split between Eastern and Western way in the past. So we had the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is around the world today. The Eastern Orthodox split in 988. The Russians kind of split off or came into creation, and it became the Russian Orthodox Church. So it's it's under the uh, doctrinal thinking of Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's it's separate. And it all began in 988 uh, with a with a fellow interestingly named Vladimir. 
and uh, he converted the Ukraine area into Christianity, or he called it a creation, you know, converting. And that's when it came into existence. Now, under Putin and its group, they've been building three churches a day. That's how fast it's growing. Hmm. And that's all with the funding support of Putin. And Kiev was the center of it. And for it not to be part of Russia, of course, is why he's turning back, because he says that's where the heart of the Russian Orthodox Church is. Again, let me, for our listeners, let me put a disclaimer out there. My dad used to say you had large C Christians and little C Christians because much of the world <laughs> is a religion. And, and of course, another thing my dad used to say is we're not part of religion. We have a relationship with Christ. That's what we have. But we look at this situation and we're trying to understand why Putin is doing what he is doing, even though it seems like this may not make sense for him to continue on on this path. You don't think he's going to give up? No, actually, I don't. Um, back in 2014, I was going to write a booklet about the Ukraine because it was very much in the news at that time. The European Union was pushing for the Ukraine to join it or to begin joining it. And and obviously, energy is very crucial because it travels from Russia to Europe. Uh, the European Union today, by the way, receives 41% of its natural gas. That's how it heats homes from Russia coming through the Ukraine. So you can see the European Union really wants this. But for Putin, I, I sat and I read his books. I read his biographies by others. I've read what he's written. If we understand his personal history, we understand better what's driving him. And, and as far as not giving up, I'll be amazed if he pulls back. And let me explain by one simple story of his childhood. When he was a very young lad, uh, he was bullied at school terribly, came home, was actually injured from being bullied and, and beat up, and he came home to his mother who was, as I said, she was a Russian Orthodox believer, uh, not a Christian believer, but a believer in Russian Orthodoxy. And he told her, he said, I will never be bullied again. Hmm. And many times he said, if he's pushed into a corner, always take the offensive and without getting too political, because I'm trying to focus on a little different area here, he's been bullied into a situation here where he finally took action on the Ukraine because NATO was getting ready to absorb the Ukraine. They're getting ready to put weapons in. And I always tell people, anybody who lived in the 60s, do you remember how we felt when Russians put missiles in Cuba? That scared us. I, my parents were building a bomb shelter. Well, Putin, if NATO comes into the Ukraine, Putin is in that same kind of situation because that puts him right on the edge of Russia. So he was pushed into it in many ways politically, and then certain events have occurred that now he feels the freedom to try to do this. But he's seeing that he was bullied. He's seeing that this is the time to take the offensive and he'll never be bullied again. So it's hard to believe he's going to back off in this situation with Kiev. If you were to look at this motivation that he has from a religious standpoint and basically his psychological makeup when you talk about the bullying, what does that indicate that he's going to do in the future, in your opinion, Rob? One thing Putin has said very clearly, he's, he's made two distinct statements many times in the past. Number one 
is he is trying to reestablish Mother Russia. Now, when we think of Russia, we think of the USSR and how it was trying to expand communism throughout the world in a campaign. Uh, that's really not behind Putin. He's not a communist. And therefore, his goal, in his words, is to reestablish Mother Russia. So what I went and I looked at historically, what was really Mother Russia? And the Ukraine was vital to Mother Russia. In fact, in those days, Ukrainians thought of themselves as Russian. And so um, he wants to expand and take the land of Russia. But his goal isn't necessarily to go and take Europe and then eventually the United States, as we once feared with Russians. Uh, his goal is to just reestablish what he believes is supposed to be properly Russia itself. And so I do believe if you, you look in history, the Ukraine is definitely part of it. If you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Ukraine is part of Gog Magog, which I believe is part of, will be part of the Russian alliance against Israel. It makes sense that the Ukraine would be his target. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that, you know, uh, he, he really liked some other countries like Belarus. But even Poland and uh, Romania, which are borders to Ukraine, those are tightly into the European Union. He, he's not naive. He's not trying to start a world war unless pushed into a corner. And that's what I always stress is if our politicians better understood what motivates Putin, I'm not saying they should compromise, but I'm saying that they they might not be able to quite stir up some of the fears of world war unless they push it themselves. And what most people fail to realize is is events just in the last two years have really pushed him into a corner. Um, he has pipelines that run through the Ukraine that supply energy to Europe that's vital to Europe. Europe has found an alternative source called East Med Pipeline from Israel hmm. to Cyprus to Greece to Europe. And that pipeline would, of course, diminish Russia's income significantly and its competition. Well, the current administration has stopped that on climate arguments, and that has put Russia back in a strong economic position. If that were to open up again, we have the stage set for Ezekiel 38 and 39 because he will need that oil and natural gas of Israel. So it, it really, the whole thing comes together. You have an economic pressure, you have a religious zeal, and um, consequently we have the Ukrainian situation of today. Well, and that's certainly what we do here on Prophecy Today as we look at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. And boy, the hair stood up on my arm when you started mentioning that because, yeah, that's that's exactly what uh, Scripture says is going to take place. And, and that could definitely be a reason that that would happen. Not to say we're not assigning things necessarily here. We're just saying stages being set. And it doesn't take much to see how this could be the case. Well, Rob, you said something about your book that you wrote on Ukraine. Could you tell Tell our listeners about that and how to get it. Oh, sure. In 2014, I wrote a book because Ukraine was quite much in the news at that time. Uh, it's called Russia and the Ukraine Setting the Stage for Ezekiel's Prophecy. It's a digital PDF book. They can get it through my website at 
www.congdenministries.org, and they can order it there. Uh, within 24 hours of ordering it, it will arrive on an electronic transfer that they can download. Uh, it's $3, which is a very modest price for it. And the interesting thing is I have been giving hundreds of these out in the last week or so as people have come to me and said, didn't you write something? And after they read it, they said, come on, you wrote this last week, didn't you? And I said, well, I tried to write it so it wasn't was more timeless. It would fit because it teaches about Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Russia and the Ukraine. And they said, well, it reads like you just wrote this. I said, no, I wrote in 2014 because <laughs> scripture doesn't change. <laughs> I think it's important as Christians, and I stress this, and you, you already just suggested this. We're not trying to say this is fulfilled prophecy. We're trying to show that what we read in our Bible in prophecy hmm. is feasible in our day. It could happen right now. And we as Christians, the Lord tells us we need to be alert and know what's happening, and therefore it gives us an insight. So while we're not saying this is fulfillment, it could be someday, it could be this, but we don't know that. But we're saying, see, this shows how feasible what God has written could easily happen in our lifetime. And that gets exciting to me because, as your dad would always say, we keep looking up, and I, I, <laughs> I'm expectant. So... Um, I think it is important also as Christians to understand how God is working. We know he sets up kings, he takes them down, all part of his plan. It could well be that he has allowed this to be part of that plan and to be further setting the stage. Wow, what a great interview. Rob Congdon, listeners, this is uh, this book that he's got here. If you go to Congdon Ministries uh, to get it, and we'll put a link up on our front page at prophecytoday.com. But I urge you to go to read and again, to continue to study. And, and like we always say, this is just uh, forcing us to be pure, prepared, and productive in the light of God's soon return. So Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Well, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And we pray the Lord will bless you and the listeners too. Well, we're going to have a follow-up question this week uh, to one of our contributors now who has been with us uh, quite a bit during this whole Ukraine situation, R.C. Merle. R.C. Merle has a website, prophecytracker.org. Uh, I encourage you to go there. R.C., welcome to the program today. Thanks, Jimmy. Good to be back with you. And I, I wanted to have this follow-up question because we are seeing so much that is coming out of this. This past week has seen a lot of headlines about economic sanctions against Russia from both the European Union and the United States. But one headline from the largest of the big four American banks warned that unintended consequences could result. What do they mean by that? You know, the simplest way for me to put it is that the enemy countries of the United States have been planning how to work around U.S. economic sanctions and develop their own methods of trading without using the U.S. dollar, the world reserve currency. Jimmy, you and I have been talking about an economic alliance between China and Russia since the December 17th article you sent me from the Global Times, and I quote, Russia and China have agreed to develop shared financial structures to deepen economic ties. Now, since that article was published, a lot has happened, and much of it this past week. On Tuesday, March 1st, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan, the world's largest bank, warned that some sanctions Western leaders are calling for could have unintended consequences, or in plain English, could backfire 
and pave the way for alternative payment systems. This would give enemies of the West free reign to ditch the U.S. dollar as reserve currency. Now, according to the Central Bank of Russia's website, Russia has been developing an alternative payment system since the 2014 invasion of Crimea. Mm. And according to a Monday Reuters article, China has developed an alternative payment system apart from SWIFT, also bypassing the U.S. dollar. Not coincidentally, both Russia and China have functioning central bank digital currencies that could expedite trade without using the U.S. dollar. So let me clarify. It appears that Russia and China have been preparing for a new financial system, and it just may be that the Ukraine invasion is the first test run. Wow, that is interesting. Could you explain to our listeners, RC, how long the dollar has been the world reserve currency and what it means to the global economy? Yeah, Jimmy, the U.S. dollar has been world reserve currency since the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944. Under the Bretton Woods system, the dollar was pegged to gold, and most other currencies were pegged to the dollar. As a result of this arrangement, dollars were used as the lone world reserve currency. What that means is when nations deal in international trade, like buying oil or wheat or corn, they conduct their transactions in U.S. dollars. So if the dollar were to lose reserve status, nations would need to sell dollars and Mm. purchase whatever the new world reserve currency is, and that will devastate the value of nearly everything United States citizens own. What we are witnessing is the dismantling of the existing global financial system that has been in use since 1944. Wow. Are you saying that by sanctioning Russia, the U.S. could be setting itself up for a catastrophe? Exactly. Diamond's warning to the West went several steps further, saying there are a lot of workarounds for SWIFT. While SWIFT sanctions mean companies can't use the messaging system to do business with the Russian entities affected, they can still do business with them. In fact, it's as simple as sending an email with a payment instruction because what SWIFT really is is a messaging remnant from a bygone era, before emails, even before the fax machine. (laughs) So how will the U.S. ever use economics to stop Russia? Diamond explained that the overuse of sanction powers could compel other nations like Iran, India, Brazil, and Venezuela to try to replace dollar transactions as Russia has done. These nations are encouraged by organizations that are vying for a new financial order like Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. So sanctioning is becoming a a difficult proposition. Yeah, RC, it, it appears from what you are telling us that a lot of bad actors are working to dethrone the United States dollar. And Jimmy, that brings us to a dangerous point. On Wednesday afternoon, after the Federal Reserve monthly meeting, Chairman Jay Powell made two announcements that stunned analysts. One, Powell announced that raising interest rates 50 basis points at the March meeting was unlikely, virtually surrendering to the war on inflation. Two, Powell admitted that it was possible to have more than one world reserve currency, thereby virtually surrendering to the demise of the U.S. dollar, leaving three questions that beg for an answer. What nations will stand with Joe Biden and the, world, and the United States dollar as world reserve currency? Two, what will happen if more third-party nations join with Russia and China mm. in avoiding the dollar in international transactions? And three, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? 
<laughs> Good question. The most asked question in uh, in, a, in a Bible prophecy conference uh, in the Q and A sessions. Uh, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? RC, thank you so much for joining with us. We're going to keep an eye on all of those uh, those last points that you brought to our attention. Uh, we need you here with us to help us, but we do see a system being set up that is preparing the way for the Antichrist that will come in with a new world economic system, correct? That's correct, Jimmy. This is it. All the dominoes are lining up. RC, thank you so much. Uh, prophecytracker.org is his website. Please go there. Thank you for joining with us, RC. Jimmy, it was great to be with you again. God bless. Well, I have a special guest on the line with me today. I have Julian Evermesco. He is a friend of mine, a friend of our families, uh, a person that we've ministered with over the years. Um, both myself and Jimmy have been with him there in Romania. Um, but he is actually in a hot spot of the world right now, and he has actually a conference. Julian, could you introduce your pastor? Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me, Rick, especially during these times, uh, like you said, where there is so much uncertainty, but in the same time, uh, for us as Christians, certainty in Jesus. I wanted to talk to you guys because you're right there uh, where these mm -hmm. things are taking place. And I know you talked to me the other day that, you know, there's quite a few Ukrainian uh, refugees. Could you tell me what you're seeing there on the ground? And you guys are in Bucharest, is that right? Yes, we are in uh, Bucharest, the capital of Romania. Uh, so far, uh, just like on the news show, over 700,000 people uh, fled Ukraine. It's going to be close to a million just in the next uh, few hours. And we saw over uh, 100,000 just uh, coming to uh, Romania. What I was surprised and shocked, actually, because I was in the middle of the conference, like I said, is to see the quick response of the churches of the people of Romania. Mm -hmm. All of them, literally many hundreds of organizations and churches and thousands of people fled to the border with Ukraine to welcome the refugees and to offer them housing. Many of my friends, my church hosts over 90 people, refugees, in uh, just uh, people welcoming them into their homes, feeding them, taking care of them. And uh, it was it, it is overwhelming to see the response of the Romanian church and not only believers, but everybody joining together. And it's so true what COVID, you know, divided us, the world really uh, united us. But what the sad part is, uh, we saw it with our own eyes. It's to see so many uh, mothers, with their children crossing the border and uh, without their dads being able to cross. And what happened, for example, my boys are both in sports and we have two gyms that they're practicing uh, handball, like literally five minutes from my house. And both of those gyms are full with refugees from Ukraine. So Romania is packed right now. Uh, these gyms that were made by the European Union with every village, every city that they built uh, with their money, now they are filled with uh, refugees. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would like for you, uh, Jason to share with you something that we just witnessed uh, less than an hour ago when we went to uh, test them uh, for COVID uh, because they need it for tomorrow when they travel back to the U.S. Yeah, so we went to one of the random COVID test sites, uh, my wife and I with Julian, and as we're standing in line, the family, there's two families in front of us, two moms, and each one has a kid. Uh, we noticed that their passports are Ukrainian. And so we ask if they speak English, they say yes. And so we start up a conversation with them 
how they're doing, if they have a place to stay, if they have everything they need, food, shelter, because there's, you know, various churches and the Baptist Seminary here in Bucharest even is providing uh, relief and housing for people. And so, yes, they, they, they were okay and they were on their way to Germany, which is why they needed their test. And then I just asked them briefly, like, how are your dads? Because I have not seen the first Ukrainian male anywhere in the city, uh, whether it's at the hotel that has a lot of Ukrainian tag license plates uh, on the cars out front. And, of course, the teenage girl starts tearing up at that moment because the story over and over as we talk to these Ukrainian families is dad puts the whole family in the car, he drives to the border, drops the family off to be on a bus or train, and then dad has to drive back to help defend Ukraine. Hmm. And sometimes they've been able to keep in touch with their dad, and but most of the times, no, they haven't been able to keep in touch with their dad. And so they've not seen their dad for days since they left him at the border. It was just absolutely heart-wrenching. Yeah, they started hugging immediately after we we had to leave, and we were looking back as the girls start bursting, crying, you know, missing her dad. That's where I think we need to come alongside and really pray for mm-hmm. these kids because uh, these kids are going to be shocked. But they are shocked and they're going to remember this situation as they go right now for the rest of their lives. This is going to be a very traumatic moment for a lot of families coming out of Ukraine. Well, I'm so grateful that you guys are there. I appreciate what you're doing. And folks, on this program, we look a lot at current events and how they uh, reflect on on Bible prophecy. But we're looking now at the individual human reaction. And boy, that's heart-wrenching just to hear those stories and to hear what you're saying. Folks, we need to continue to pray for the people of Ukraine. Pray for the people of Russia as well, and pray for everybody that's involved in this situation. Mm-hmm. There is a certainly a human cost. We appreciate, again, what you're doing there. Uh, you guys be safe. We will continue to pray for you, and thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. God bless you, Rick, and uh, thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Let's continue to pray for the people of Ukraine and those nations surrounding Ukraine that are going to be receiving some of these people that are coming across, especially the families without their fathers. What a heartbreaking story, but one where we as believers can help out. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, a new series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series called Alpha and Omega, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and along with my brother Rick, we do examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And we're coming up to the Legacy Series, Rick. So many people have told us how important the Legacy Series is. Yeah, Jimmy, that reminds me of a story. Uh, This past week, I was dropping my kids off at church for Sunday school. And one of the mothers who I know is a frequent listener, she comes up to me and she goes, you know what, we needed your dad for times like these because of all the things that are taking place. But she then expressed how grateful Mm. that we are still continuing the program on and we are still continuing to look at current events and show where they place us in the light of God's prophetic word. We sure have learned the way to understand God's plan for the future is by studying God's prophetic word. That's a great story, Rick. And so many people have sent in text messages, emails, uh, letting us know how much they appreciate the program. Well, on the Legacy program today, we will begin a brand new series. The title of this series is the Alpha and Omega. These two Greek words mean the beginning and 
and the end. In this series, we'll be looking at the beginning of Bible prophecy that is found in the book of Genesis and the end of time scenario in God's word found in the book of Revelation. But first, we want to go to see what the apostle Peter, and I always like that, Rick, we always talk about Peter and his words to the early church that are so applicable to us today. We want to see what the apostle Peter says about the end times and how we are to live in these times. So take your Bible and let's go to the book of Second Peter, where Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy series in a brand new series entitled Alpha and Omega. Are we not living in unbelievable times I mean, you cannot pick up the paper, listen to a newscast, or watch a television news report without realizing where we are in God's time. If you've studied Bible prophecy, you need to understand the prophetic scenario laid out in God's Word to understand the times in which we're living. And if you have some idea of Bible prophecy, it'll just amaze you. I can't imagine ever waking up in the morning because of what is going on. It just is in so much alignment with the prophetic scenario found in God's word. But these are troublesome times as well, and in particular in the church. I'm very much concerned about the way the church is moving. And I'm talking about the church, the body of Christ, and some of the decisions they're making, some of the beliefs that they are appropriating for what they try to believe is the way to live in the days in which we're living. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 with me, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter is the swan song for the apostle Peter, and especially chapter 3. It's almost like he's writing a third epistle, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, almost a third epistle. It's part of the second book of, of, of Peter's epistles there. Uh, But it's a very interesting couple of chapters that are dealing with something that Peter wants to make certain that we have as he has to depart. He's almost to depart. You know that Peter traditionally was crucified upside down on a cross. And they were going to crucify him. And he said, I do not want to be crucified the way my Savior Jesus was. Instead, uh, crucify me upside down on a cross. And he was not in the city of Rome, Italy. I don't know that there's any evidence that he ever went to Rome. He didn't start the church in Rome. The Roman church was established by the Apostle Paul. We have no record that he was there. We have an indication that he's buried in Jerusalem. And so some of that theology that comes out of Peter going to Rome, never do we see he went to Rome. He went, in fact, the opposite direction. Rome is northwest. He went southeast and went into Babylon. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13 says he established a church in the city of Babylon. That was the second most populated Jewish city in the time of Peter when he went to the uttermost parts of the earth. But in 2 Peter, I said chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 1 first. Let me show you something. Verse 15, chapter 1. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, see, he was recognizing the times, he knew he was going to be dying soon, to have these things always in remembrance. And he's continually, in this epistle, talking about remembering and causing you to have remembrance of something that has been taught. Verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he talks about here, the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, after he had pronounced Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then it says six days later they were at Caesarea Philippi in that region, 
Peter and James and John, the inner circle, were taken by Jesus Christ. The last verse in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus makes, gives a prophecy, basically. He said, there are some of you here gathered with me that shall not die till you see me come in my kingdom. And then in the 17th chapter, six days later, they went up the slopes of Mount Hermon, and there the transfiguration took place. Peter, James, and John were able to witness Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body. They saw Moses in his resurrected, glorified body. And they saw Elijah. He did not resurrect because he never had died. So he was not there in a resurrected body, but his glorified body looking to the future and what was going to take place. And he was an eyewitness. He heard God the Father say, this is my son. Hear ye him. What a phrase that was when God said, listen to what Jesus has to say. But I want you to notice something. He was an eyewitness. He saw all this happening. Now look at verse 19. But we have also a more sure word of prophecy where Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star, that's Jesus Christ, arise in your heart. He said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Better than an eyewitness account, Peter? Absolutely, a more sure word of prophecy. What is it? It's this book right here. That's the more sure word of prophecy. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 21. A more sure word of prophecy. This book is packed with prophecy, prophetic passages that will help us understand what's going to happen. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you can take your thumb and put it on Lamentations chapter 1. That's over after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And then you can put your index finger on the last chapter of Revelation. Pinch between that thumb and index finger, those pages between Lamentations 1, Revelation 22. If you pinch those pages there, that is 42 books of the Bible. 27 books in the Old Testament, 15 books in the New Testament. That's of 1,188 chapters of the Bible, 392 chapters. That's one-third of God's Word pinched between your fingers. That's one in every three pages. And that's all Bible prophecy. And the Apostle Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now go to chapter 3. He's going to now lay out, in light of that foundational thought, what the situation is going to be and what he would like to see happen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds. How? By way of remembrance. And then he tells us what he wants us to remember. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken of by the holy prophets. That's the number one thing he wants you to hear. And remember. And our minds will be stirred up. Our pure minds will be stirred up. What the holy prophets had to say, and then of the commandment of us that are apostles of the Lord, what the apostles had to say, God breathed into them, not by their choice, but by the Holy Spirit of God, sovereignly selecting them to breathe into them prophetic truth for us, okay, by the prophets, by the apostles, and by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so those three, he wants us to remember what they said about prophetic truth, what is going to happen in the future. That will stir up our pure mind. Then notice what he says. This is describing the days that we are living in and what he believed would be the last days. 
Verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, now notice this phrase, scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his kingdom? We're not talking about lost people here. We're not talking about uh, those people in the churches out there that are modernistic and have no idea the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about the church, the body of Christ, people that he wants to stir up their pure minds, people who have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And they'll be saying, where is the coming of uh, the promise of his coming? Notice what he says. Jesus Christ is not slack concerning his promise. Verse 9. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. And so he's telling us here, Jesus Christ is coming. Those who are scoffers walking after their own lust are going to deny that truth of the coming of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ, Peter says, is not slack concerning his promise. The only reason he has not come is he wants others to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I want to tell you, friend, there's going to be a great train wreck one of these days pretty soon. Coming down one track, headed towards the other train, is all of the prophetic truth in God's Word. And everything, every single thing that has to happen before the rapture of the church has been fulfilled. And it's about to come to fulfillment completely. And then there is those group of people that are coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We're living in a time, and Peter gave testimony of it, Acts 15, the council at Jerusalem when James the pastor asked Peter and Paul to give their testimony about leading Gentiles to Jesus Christ. And then James concluded, hey, what you men have testified, leading Gentiles to Christ, Peter the first to lead a Gentile to Jesus, there Cornelius and Caesarea, he said, uh, this agrees with the word of God. And we're living in a time now, the times of the Gentiles that will come to know Christ as Savior. There's going to be the last Gentile who comes to know Christ, and then Jesus Christ is going to come back. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And so these two trains are running, lickety-split at each other. And when the last Gentile comes to know Christ, that God knows will happen, then the fulfillment of prophecy will take place, and Jesus Christ will rapture us out of here. That train collision is going to happen. But before, there are going to be those in the church, in the body of Christ, believers. That's who Second Peter was written to, that are going to deny the coming of the Lord, walking after their own desires. May I say this? If the number one attraction, the number one ambition, the number one event that you're looking forward to is not the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, you better check out your life. Because he said, those people who deny his coming are walking after their own lust. I'm not making, I'm not chastising you. I'm telling you what the word of God says. The word of God should convict all of us. We need to be focused on him coming back. But notice what else he says will be in the times before this all happens. Look here in verse 4. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were before. From uh, the beginning of the creation, and that is uh, a total contradiction to what is going on in our world. All things do not remain the same from that time. Look at verse 5. For this they are willfully ignorant. But notice what they're going to be willfully ignorant of here. Verse 
5, they're going to be willfully ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. God created everything. That's what they're going to be willfully ignorant of. The second thing, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That's talking about the flood, a worldwide flood that will take place. And then verse 7, and by the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Judgment, they deny three things. Three things they're willfully ignorant of. First of all, God's creation. Secondly, the worldwide flood. And thirdly, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. By the way, my translation for that phrase there, not willfully ignorant, I'm going to say that it should have been translated dumb on purpose. Much better than willfully ignorant. They're going to be dumb on purpose at a time of the end. As the Bible does say, people will be, as I refer to it, dumb on purpose at the time of the end. But here's the good news. You can, as I have done, take God's word by faith and live forever. However, we can also know how to live today as we take God's prophetic word, the words of the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus himself and find out how to live in the days before Jesus Christ comes back. That was Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series and a new series entitled Alpha and Omega. It's very important that we be able to connect from A to Z everything that's in God's plan for mankind. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book, and we have a special friend joining with us right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Russia seizes its first major city in Ukraine as the invasion enters a second week. Over a million people have fled the country so far, and the civilian death toll could be as high as 2,000. Ukraine's future grows darker by the day, but a ray of light emanates from believers on the ground. Operation Mobilization USA is helping pastors and churches in Ukraine read their stories in the full report at missionnews.org, and please continue to pray for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Christians make up just 0.3% of the population of Bangladesh. It's difficult for that number to grow. Peter Mazumdar is the National Director of Asian Access in Bangladesh. He says sharing the gospel is constitutionally protected in Bangladesh, but it still often brings persecution. Over the last three years, more than 11,000 Christians have been displaced after their houses were burned. Ask God to protect believers who come out of Muslim families. You're listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events over the last hour and a half of uh, a time like never before. Rick, uh, as we are looking at today's news and we're watching it, it seems like things are jumping off the pages of Bible prophecy. Well, it is, Jimmy, and sometimes when we watch the news, we see the horror of war. We've been talking about kind of on a higher level, uh, the political, the military, the religious um, reasons why maybe this war is taking place, but then we also were able to talk with some people who are actually experiencing this war on a very personal level. You know, on the program, I want to bring in now Dr. Heath Marion, who is a former pastor, uh, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, our expert. Really, when we want to talk about what the church and how the church's response should be, Heath, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. It's uh, good to be back. Thank you so much for having me on. Heath, you know, when we're looking as believers, when we're seeing these things now in our lifetime, and I know our 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 parents, uh, our grandparents, people that we know that have gone through the horrors of war uh, taking place, what should the Christian's response be to what's taking place? Uh, well, obviously, it's going to be one of shock, or it is, it does, it is gut-wrenching. It uh, should shake us a little bit, but then at the same time, when we now turn ourselves back to Scripture, we see James chapter 4. He talks about this question. Where do fights and wars come from? They come because we actually lust, do not have, we murder and commit because we cannot obtain. Mm. War and fighting is always going to be a result of one person, leader, country, desiring and lusting for what they can't have, they don't have, and so they want it. And they're willing to do whatever it takes. You know, this is goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And then even when we get into the, the New Testament, Jesus talks about wars. And he says this is going to be signs of the time. They're going to increase. I hate even saying that. I hate even talking like that. But that is a signs of Jesus actually coming back. And that's what we're excited about. But with that comes this birth pain of extra heartache when we go into war and that to me you know it impacts me over the over the years when we talk about the church thomas aquinas talked about this Dietrich bonhoeffer has talked about it mm. um if people want to look at um what has been written they can google search just war and that would be give them a lot to be able to to look at and to start figuring out what the actual bible says what other christian philosophers and theologians have began to say um, to me, there's been a lot written on this because obviously this is not the first time we've had war. We've had World War One, World War Two. We've had massive wars. Even David in the Old Testament in Psalms said, "Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war." So David was no stranger to even having to fight and go to war to battle for what was right. Well, the thing that strikes me from what you talked about there, Heath, is that there's always going to be men in this world with sinful motivations. Um, that's the truth. That's the consequences of the fall. Absolutely. And that's exactly what God has actually set up the government to do, is to be the sword to hold back that evil in the world, to push back the, the wrongs being committed. And so what God uses is governments who are supposed to be the ones who give the rights, who help us defend the weak and defend the ones who can't fight for themselves. 
You know, I like the fact that you brought up about Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, when you look at the Olivet Discourse and it talking about perilous times. We're living in those perilous times, Heath. And this is uh, basically the signs that are leading up to his second coming. And before his second coming, there will be a seven-year period of time of tribulation. Do you think that in our lifetime that, uh, you know, we could see major wars that are obviously going to get worse during that tribulation period, but we uh, as Christians will live through major wars in the future? I, I think we're going to see more wars until Jesus comes back. And we're not going to be immune just because we're a believer mm. from pain and suffering and actually evil people doing wrong. And so how do we respond? I would say for us as Christians, the first thing we have to do is we have to pray for our leaders. God can turn the hearts of every leader and God can turn countries back and forth. So we're going to ask God to to do a work to turn the hearts right. And then we're also going to give pray for our leaders to have the right wisdom to when they should engage and when they shouldn't. And then second, what I would say is we need to love the stranger and the foreigner, those who are refugees. It's our call. It's it's us showing the hands and feet, the love of Christ to those who are displaced. We have to be out there in the, on the front lines loving and caring for people. And then obviously I think the last part is there is a responsibility to push back darkness. And that means there's going to be Christian men and women who are going to have to go to the front lines, who end up having to maybe be the soldiers, who are the ones who have to be the generals, who make the calls, who have to fight to defend the rest of us. And so we want to pray for them, pray for their safety, but then pray for, for God to really get glory in the midst of this, this trial and this pain. That's excellent advice, Heath. I agree with you 100%. And prayer for our leaders, prayer for everybody that's involved in these situations. I often think, and this is something that my dad uh, instilled in all of us, when things start to get out of hand, when you're not really sure what's going on, go back to the book, go back to the Scripture. And I'm so glad that we do have the opportunity to go back to Scripture, to look at Bible prophecy and be comforted by the thought that uh, God has ordained government and, and, and set it up, and he's put leaders in place to bring about his will. And so in the end, he is going to be in charge, and he's going to be in control, and his plan is going to come through. But in the meantime, we do need to be out there. We need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for those that are uh, being sometimes horribly affected by this war. We sure do. Dr. Heath Marion, thank you so much for joining with us today. Thank you for that exhortation. As we heard from Julian Avramescu in Romania to Dr. Heath Marion here in the United States. Heath, thank you for joining with us today. And we do continue to ask for prayers for the Ukrainian people and for us as we understand how God wants us to live in this world. And I like what you said, Heath. We need to live and understand that everything brings glory and honor to God. And we just need to see how in our world in which we're living, we can do that and be prepared and ready to do that when the time comes. Rick, there was a lot of information given today so that we can help the body of Christ be prepared to make decisions as we are moving forward in the future. Jimmy, I'm honored to be able to be here and to continue on this legacy at Prophecy Today of looking at these current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Understanding where we are on God's timeline, it really does cause us to live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. Thank you for joining with us. We'll see you again next week on Prophecy Today Weekend. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.